0: What is the spirit of Maine? Conversations from the Pointed Furs is a new one-hour interview program with authors and artists attempting to capture the elusive elements of this special place in which we live. The first Friday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. on WERU-FM 89.9 Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine. I'm Peter Neal, host of this new program. My guests this week are Kathy and Bill Kinney authors of the Historic Taverns and Tea Rooms of Maine, wonderful story of the social history and political culture in Maine as nurtured in unexpected places. Please join us here on WERU-FM for conversations from the pointed furs.
1: What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors. From Maine.
0: Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs, interviews with authors and artists whose work evokes the spirit of Maine. My guests today are Kathy and Bill Kenney, authors of the Historic Taverns and Tea Rooms of Maine, published by the History Press of Charleston, South Carolina, a small publisher that specializes in local and regional histories. Kathy is a retired librarian and quilt historian. Bill is a retired U.S. Air Force career officer and adjunct professor teaching international economics, public affairs, and organizational leadership. Kathy and Bill, thanks for joining me today. As an introduction, we usually first talk a bit about who you are, where you came from, and how you were drawn to the subject of the book to this wonderful history.
2: I'm Bill Kenny. I grew up in Old Town, Maine. And I joined the Air Force very young, and then I became an officer and traveled all around the world. And my wife grew up in Baileyville near Callis, and she's a retired librarian. And we both have a wonderful history of Maine interest. As a matter of fact, I wrote another book called The History of Maine Railroads, which is also published by the History Press. And you can get either one of them at www.historymaine.com get autographed copies if you want. But that's basically our background. And have been traveling around the country. We've always been interested in history where we've gone, but it brought us back to our roots in Maine. And we thought it was perfect to look at this from a Maine's perspective. And the reason we wrote this book is when I was writing the history of Maine railroads, I stumbled on all these taverns that ended up being railroad stops later on. And I said, well, what were they before that? And I found out that they go back to the early settlements of Maine. So that's why we started writing this book.
0: One thing that fascinated me about this book was the separation of gender, of gender roles, the tavern for men and the tea rooms for women, places for private exchange and social interaction, places where men could be men and women could be women, where both could talk about things that they did not necessarily talk about with each other
3: I agree with that to a certain extent but it was the the norm until probably the mid-1800s that it was men in this room and women in that room and the women did um, attend the taverns if they were accompanied by a male escort but they didn't enjoy it because it was smoky and it was loud and people were drinking, so it was not a conducive place for a woman to spend any time. And the the custom of the day was such that if you did go into those buildings and try to get a cup of tea or a lunch, and you didn't have a male escort, then you were not respectable. And if you were not considered respectable in the town, then you were shunned and nobody enjoyed uh, conversing with you or visiting with you. So you lost all your respectability. And then this kept going on and on until probably the late 1800s and women decided they'd had enough and they would like to start having a place where they could go and feel comfortable and safe. So tea rooms evolved.
0: So let's start the way your story is outlined in the book. Let's start with the tavern that evolved primarily as a rest stop for travelers.
2: The the taverns ended up being rest stops for travelers, but originally there were settlements in Maine. Don't think of them as towns, they were settlements. They were along the coast, there were settlements by the English and settlements by the French, and basically they didn't travel over land at all. They traveled by boat, They, they very seldom went from one point to another among the the different settlements what they were was they were the community places in the towns or the settlements at the time where they held that's where all the government meetings were held there was no town halls there were no courts that's where courts were held that's where all the business of the day was conducted and later on when they did started doing building further in land then they started becoming stops and then, uh, then the The mail started being delivered and they became the post offices along the way as well. But originally they weren't rest stops. They were basically the gathering places within the individual communities. And it's estimated that about 85 or 90% of the people in these settlements never went to a neighboring settlement. They were primarily fishermen. They were not agricultural as we think of Maine later on. So they were fishermen, and then later on they got into timber, which is, again, why they were along the coast, and why the British cared, because all of the, the timber for the mast, and the ships, and so forth. So that's, that's the reason it was done. But later on they did become stopping points along the way, uh, and that's, so that's just a clarification.
0: I was interested to read about the tavern in Freeport that played such an important role in Maine's independence from
2: Massachusetts. Well, there were actually two taverns that were, that were very important. First of all, there was a tavern, uh, the William Everett's Tavern in Elliott. Uh, they had a meeting in 1652 in Elliot, where the townsfolks voted, or the people of Maine met there to vote not to become a separate state. They wanted to stay part of Massachusetts. Now, again, at the time, they were doing all their business with Massachusetts, all by ships, so they had real no business interest or any other interest to become a separate state. The Jameson Tavern of Freeport was where allegedly, and I say allegedly, they were, the, the papers were signed to make a separate state, but that wasn't until the 1800s, 1820 roughly. So, but again, that's under a little bit of a dispute. We know they met there. Uh, the Historical Society of Freeport is questioning whether they actually signed the papers there. The Daughters of the American Revolution did put a, a plaque outside of the Jameson Tavern, which still exists right next to L.L.B. So they still they claimed at the time and still claim that that's where the papers were signed. But there were two different important taverns involved: the Jameson in the 1800s for the with the vote for statehood, and the William Everett's Tavern in Elliot, where they voted not to join the state back in 1652. So the evolution from
0: meeting place to accommodation. Basically, followed the arrival of the railroad.
2: No, before the railroad, what what happened was, for example, when John Adams, who was the traveling circuit judge for the for England, wished to ride by horseback five five days to go from Boston to Powellboro, Maine, which is Wiscasset, to hold court. Well, when they'd started doing that, Massachusetts people coming up here from Massachusetts, a dignitary said. It's awful to travel up there, they're just cowpats. So they said, we've got to develop a road system to do that. So they developed that road system, which we call post roads, for the post office coming later. And so they started building very crude, rudimentary roads and started traveling by stagecoach between these towns. And the taverns became the places to stop because a stagecoach could only go about eight or 10 miles before it had to stop. They had to change horses. Uh, and they had a place to stay, so they stayed overnight.
0: I was very interested to find all these famous people, including presidents of the United States, who traveled to Maine and stayed in these taverns. Who were they, and why were they
2: coming? Well, they came because when they come to, for politics reasons, uh, they came to hold court. They came to, uh, again, do government business. Now, a good example of that is the Jet Party Tavern in Bucksport, which still exists today. It's not a senior living facility. Here's a list of the people that stayed there Daniel Webster, Martin Van Buren, William Henry Harrison, Jefferson Davis, Andrew Jackson, James Monroe, John Tyler, Martin Van Buren. That was the place they had to stay. Now, if you look at the, where Bucksport is, you could travel by boat up the Penobscot River to get to Bucksport. So they would stay at the tavern there and then they would branch off and go to other small localities to business and discuss politics. But I thought it was amazing that the uh, president of the of the Confederacy stayed there. Things like that was very interesting to me quite a bit. But this was back before the Confederacy, obviously. But it's amazing to me all the places that, that stayed there, all the people that stayed there. I also was very interested in what was served up as fair. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because beer had to come in uh, by boat, by ship, and it was very expensive. So remember, again, these folks were local. So they dealt with what they had. So what they did was they started making a lot of rum. So rum was a big drink. And they started mixing part beer, part rum, and part local things like corn squeezings and home brew. So they started making their own brews and, and, and Things like that. So they again it was sort of like a grog type if you look if you think about it in today's terms. So they drank what they could afford to drink. But remember at the same time, at the start of these taverns, water was not considered fit to eat fit to drink. It was good for cooking and good for for growing products, but it wasn't considered a good drink. So they drank the alcoholic beverage instead. And of course they did serve tea but it was English tea and Kathy can talk about that a little
0: bit. You include reflections on the menu which I found really quite wonderful. Cider and beer of course. There's a recipe for punch which I thought was formidable for fish house punch. The recipe is worth reading. Dissolve three-quarter pounds of sugar in a punch bowl filled with a bottle of lemon juice, adding two bottles of rum, one bottle of cognac, two bottles of water, one wine glass of peach cordial, and a large block of ice, and let this concoction stand for about two hours before serving. It's a punch that must have served up quite a punch. Yes, it did of punch. It's a punch. It's a good analogy. There are also some stories in here about haunted taverns and inns. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, there are
2: several listed in the book, and of course they're all alleged haunted taverns, but uh, the Jameson Tavern that we talked about earlier there's a ghost of, by the name of Emily, who was a little girl that lived there, and then people that stayed at the cabin later on could see Emily walking through the halls at night, doing those type of things. In Bar Harbor, you had another little girl named Abby, who was staying at the coach stop in. Same thing, she'd wander around and, and open doors and, and they, allegedly they could see her. And in Searsport, you had the Carriage House in, which is where Hemingway and Waldo Pierce stayed, for example. And there's ghosts of two people allegedly there, of people who died staying at that inn. So it's, it's kind of interesting. And when we go around for the book talks, people seem more fascinated by the horror that there might have been haunted houses than they are about the actual taverns. So it's kind of interesting.
0: When we talked earlier, Bill, you mentioned that you belong to a contemporary men's group called the Curmudgeon Club. Does it provide for you the same kind of safe place that taverns did in earlier times?
2: Yeah, but it's sort of different. We don't go there to drink. It's it's at Rachel's uh, on the Green, which is a, a pub and tavern. It's part of the Valhalla Golf Course in my local town of Cumberland. And it's 10 to 15 men who get together every Friday morning for breakfast and solve all the problems of the world. So we call ourselves the curmudgeons. But it's uh, very interesting. And political views come up, but we also were able to have good, healthy discussions without being too adversive. So it's it's, it's a fun group. What is the story of tea?
0: You Give us a little bit of history and how it came and how it evolved as well to be part of a movement.
3: Well, tea first arrived in the Port of London from China in the mid-1600s aboard the ships from the East India Company. And from there, it was shipped all around the world and, be, and it became the most consumed beverage after water which is incredible because when you think of water, everybody has access to water, and not everybody had access to tea until these were being shipped from China. It was first shown in the, brought to the United States in the probably the early 1700s by the Dutch to New York City. And from there, it went all over the United States, or what was the United States at the time and it became so popular that everybody all classes were starting to drink tea and they all enjoyed it so it increased the the commerce with tea and the more they drank the more it was shipped into the United States and as Bill had mentioned the taverns did serve tea but they. Um, were restricted to, because of the social custom to serving it to just women. You had to be accompanied by a man in order to drink the tea. And when they uh, had tea as a drink, a hot drink to serve, they also served loose tea there. And at the time, probably through the 16, seventeen and early 1800s, Tea was always loose tea, and you had to brew the tea. So you would buy your loose tea leaves either in a store if there was one, and if not, you could buy it at the taverns. And the taverns, of course, had that social custom that the women couldn't come in unaccompanied, So they would have to send their husbands or their servant or their brother or their uncle or somebody in to buy the loose tea for them in order for them to have tea at home to drink. So when that happened, they kept thinking, well, this is very, this is indignant of them to say that I cannot come in and buy tea. I want to go choose what kind of tea I want. So they kept pushing and pushing and pushing for a right to go into the taverns. And as the years involved, they finally uh, decided that they were gonna solve that problem and tea rooms became the answer for that.
0: It actually turned out to be quite a big business. There's the story of George Gilman and the great American tea company.
3: It was a very lucrative business and people that that, uh, went into it as an entrepreneur, made tons and tons of money. They became very successful. Uh, One of them, in fact, was John Jacob Astor. And he started uh, a lot of the fur trade in the Midwest. And he was based in New York. And he would uh, get furs to ship to China to trade for tea. And he would bring the tea back to the United States to sell it and they would have auctions at the, at the New York wharfs to sell their tea. And people would, would bid on the, on the tea and it was so lucrative that all of these men that were in that business became very, very wealthy. And the women that decided to open tea rooms also became very good entrepreneurs, and they established very good lucrative business that was a a good means for them to provide for themselves and also have a secure future.
0: Gilman was the proprietor of the great American tea company that evolved into the great Atlantic and Pacific Tea Company, the first national chain of grocery stores known as A&P.
3: It was, it was very innovative of, of all of these entrepreneurs to come up with new ways to promote their product and to have uh, the tea packaged as the A&P teas were was a a brand new thing because up until that time it was a loose tea that you got and he had packaged it so that it was you could just pick up your package and not have to have the loose tea and the tea caddies to have your tea and offering the the coupons to exchange for uh, gifts and glassware and things like that was not ever heard of before he did it so he was very innovative in the tea world.
0: I noticed also early branding and marketing. For example, a proprietary product called Tea Nectar, and the offering of discount coupons that are so ubiquitous today. These, as product diversity and advertising, were actually created in this era. Did he invent the tea bag as well?
3: No, that came later. Um, when the when the the tea rooms would serve tea and again they had to use loose tea so if you're familiar with the process of making tea from loose tea it's a little bit of a process from the time you put the tea into the the loose tea into the water until you can have a cup to drink so that was a time consuming thing and as business increased in the tea rooms they decided that they needed to find some way to make the tea quicker to serve all the patrons that were coming in and the customers wanted their tea now. They didn't like waiting for it. So eventually they started taking the loose tea and putting it in a square of cotton fabric and tying that fabric up into a little ball and tying it with a cotton thread. And then they would put that ball into the teacup to make the tea. And they could found that they could do those little tea balls ahead of time, and that was the beginning of the tea bag.
0: Thanks for joining us here at WERUFM Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine. We're talking today with Kathy and Bill Kenny, authors of *The Historic Taverns and Tea Rooms of Maine*, a wonderful book available online or from the publisher, The History Press, or through your local independent bookstore. So women founded tea rooms in their homes to begin with and then these evolved into businesses in other places. Are these examples of the first woman-owned businesses in our history?
3: The tea rooms are are a, a perfect example of the first time that women entered a business world that was basically run by men. So that in itself was a big step because they were competing with men for business. They also Most of them didn't have very much capital to invest, so they decided that there's low overhead and the the help is uh, inexpensive and the profits are very big, so I'm gonna open this tea room. And some women started in their homes because they happened to have a spare room that they could use for a tea room. But at the time, women, decided they were going to put their tea rooms anywhere they could so they were looking at everything and they put them open tea rooms in barns and in grist mills and and anything that was available that was large enough to maybe do a tea room some of them just had uh, tea rooms during the summer that were outside and they had it in their yard that overlooked the ocean or the gardens and stuff so they were they were also very innovative in how they came up with tea rooms And that was one of the things we tried to do in the book, was to show photos of all the different varieties of the tea rooms, how they all look different, because it was everything from a a room in somebody's house to a big fancy restaurant, like the Dancing Fan in a Algonquit that looked like a typical Oriental tea house. And there was everything in between.
0: There's a tradition of interior decoration and in association with flowers and gardens, an evolution from simple fare to more to a to a more formal social space.
3: Well, I think if, if you read the book, you'll find that it kind of evolved from from the colonial look, which a lot of the ones the tea owners that started their tea rooms went with the colonial look because at the time, Colonial Williamsburg was being built, and the women that were becoming tea owners also lived through a time when the antiques and the colonial decor was a comfort and love to them. So they started decorating all the tea rooms that way. By the time we get to the Victorian era, then everybody that's going to build new tea rooms in the Victorian era decided that, well, the colonial era is over now and everything in the world's evolving. So the decor in the tea room should also evolve and we're going to go with the, with the Victorian look. So that started tea rooms having the lace tablecloths and the flowers. And the palm trees, and the music, and the and uh, the more elegance of the crystal and the silver.
0: The idea of high tea—a cup of tea at the kitchen table, or evolving to the notion of high tea, elevated social exchange with lots of baked goods and all the rest—it
3: was high tea. Was was most of the teas that the women would enjoy would be called little teas which meant that they would uh, have uh, cups of tea, maybe cakes, maybe little desserts, maybe scones. But if you had a high tea, that involved, it was basically called a high tea, but it was basically a tea dinner because it involved all sorts of these same things that you would have at the little teas. But in addition, you'd have all sorts of meats from ham to to, uh, fowl to um, all sorts of different things that were more substantial so that it made it more like a dinner than just a tea snack.
0: I noticed you say that the first popovers made were made by Nellie McIntyre in 1895. God bless the woman. And what, what about the Jordan Pond House built on the site of an original tea room today notorious still for offering afternoon tea with popovers Butter and strawberry jam.
3: That's true, and it's still they're still using Nellie's recipe for it, so she must have been a terrific cook.
0: So now, what about out of the trends? For example, the evolution of the tea room as a birthplace for women's independence, the temperance movement, and the suffrage movement. Could you talk a little bit about each of those?
3: Sure. But as I stated earlier, the women were wanting more independence. And and as the years went by, they wanted more independence in their life, in education, in society, and even in politics. So the more this evolved, the more they wanted to have their independence. So they started gathering together and deciding how can we fix this? How can we make this so that everybody understands that we want our independence? So they started, first of all, with the temperance movements because of all the alcohol that was going on, it was starting to impact family lives and it was also making it very uncomfortable for people to go out to have their cups of tea. So they started having temperance meetings. And when they did that, they got such a response that they decided to start holding them at the tea rooms because the women felt very comfortable and safe in the tea room. It was more like um, a home uh, kitchen than it was going into a a tavern. So they started meeting at the tea rooms and got such a response that all over the country, the women started meeting in tea rooms to have their temperance meetings. And it grew to such an extent that they considered themselves successful and got some reform done by that way. And at the end of the temperance movement, the suffrage movement came into being. And women also decided that, I think we ought to be able to vote. We ought to be able to put our opinion in for this political stuff. So they started having suffragette meetings. And the suffragette meetings were also very well attended. And the tea tea rooms were a perfect place for them to meet, because Again, some of them were really large and catered to large groups meeting there. And they would have their suffragette meetings. And one of the the biggest and most successful suffragette tea rooms was built in Newport, Rhode Island by Alva Vanderbilt. And she had um, tea room actually sent over from China it, it was dismantled and shipped to Newport, Rhode Island, and she erected it on her house, uh, on her lawn of her house in Newport, and opened it up for suffragette meetings because she was a big supporter of suffragettes. And she would uh, charge $5 admission to go to the suffragette meeting, but in for that $5, you got a tea uh, cock and saucer that says votes for women on it. So she was very successful and contributed very much to the suffragette movements.
0: Tell me a little bit about Cornelia Dow. I also noticed that Susan B. Anthony spoke in
3: Maine. Cornelia Dow was the the daughter of Neil Dow, who was the considered uh, the temperance person of the century. He was the first person that started saying things like um you know it's you need to be sober liquor is no good it's hurting your family and he became known as the father of temperance and her his daughter cornelia uh, started to take care of him and his house after her mother died and she had temperance meetings yeah, she attended temperance meetings in Portland, but she also, I'm sure, had temperance meetings in her house on um, in Portland, her father's house. And she served on, on the executive committees of both the Women's Christian Temperance Union and also the national organization. And one of the nice things that we still have of hers is in the Main, the main State library, um, mm-hmm. Historic Museum, They have a quilt that Cornelia made with some other women in Portland. And on that quilt, there are uh, sayings for uh, patriotic sayings and anti-slavery sayings, but also temperance inscriptions on it. And she was a very strong member of it. And they decided that they were going to let all of their, their thoughts be known about all three of these subjects. So they made the quilt, and each one of them signed the quilt. And eventually, the city of Portland, in remembrance of uh, Lillian Stevens, who was one of the founders of the main chapter of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the group in Maine gave a statue to the Portland Public Library, that is of the little water girl and it's and it's a fitting tribute to maine 's temperance. I believe it was an expansion of the suffrage movement in Maine because at the time when suffrage was was trying to get past, there were a group of prominent women in the suffrage movement that were going all over the United States that making speeches and and helping women to understand what they wanted and to show them how if they got the vote, what could be accomplished. And coming to Maine was on their list of of states to visit to promote suffrage. And some of those, when they came to Maine, most of those were held in the big cities in big conference areas and things. And the smaller suffrage movements were done in the tea rooms.
0: I see that Julia Ward Howe, the originator of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, was also part of that same group at the time.
3: She was. She was a, a big supporter of women's suffrage. In fact, she was one of the first women in her time to apply for a divorce at the time, which was a natural taboo. Nobody wanted uh, anybody to get a divorce, and you were not a nice woman if you did get one. But she decided that that was one of her goals as uh, getting women's suffrage was to give her life back. And she was a very, very good speaker, and most people really enjoyed hearing her because she seemed to speak about everyday life that they could relate to.
0: I have several friends who are mightily involved in the Equal Rights Amendment campaign this very day, and I know that they often meet over a pot of tea to organize efforts to build on these beginnings of the women's rights movements in the United States.
3: That's true, and the suffrage movement started in in uh, New York with five women sitting around the table at a tea party, so it's a very, very... Uh, common for women today to meet around teapots.
0: Will you talk to me about some of your favorite taverns, places, or anecdotes that surprised you? One that caught my eye
2: was the Waldo Emerson in Kennebunk. Well, when I, 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 I'm not drawing a, the name of it off the top of my head, but I, when you come out of Brunswick and take the Augusta Road out of Brunswick, right across from the State Park there. There's an old building there that's a tavern, and it's pretty much run down now, and not kept very good shape, but that was one of the major uh, stage stops along that route. But what I was amazed about was when I, when we did the talk for in Brunswick, was Brunswick was the shopping area for Bath, Brunswick, Lewiston, Auburn. That was the shopping area. Now it wasn't Portland. It wasn't other towns, and uh, so because Auburn and Lewiston had small populations, but they had an enormous amount of tea rooms that were in. Uh, in Brunswick and again remember the location of Brunswick that's where the shipbuilding was and the timber was and the ships came in to, to commerce. so I think there was about 15 or 20 different taverns in the town of Brunswick uh, that, uh, that were very very productive and very lucrative so the Thompson tavern in Brunswick is another one that's uh, that's very very interesting uh, that's about 1750. And that's kind of neat because they had the... Uh, when well, we, we want to talk about taverns, we want to talk about the Burnham Tavern in Machias, where they had the meeting to chase the British mm-hmm. out of there because the, this was at the dawn of the American Revolution. They heard that uh, the Battle of Lexington and Concord happened. So they said, well, what can we do? Well, at the time, the British were getting timber out of Machias to take to Portland to build barracks for the British, so they didn't think that was a very good idea, what can we do, well let's drive him out, so they tried to capture the captain and they didn't, he escaped, but he ended up getting killed on the, on the, on the ship, and died right out of the port, but they chased him down to Tavern, well, at the, at, down to Portland, well at the same time, they were meeting in Brunswick at the Thompson Tavern, to say what can we do, so that's where the militia met at these taverns. So they got the militia together and they went to Portland to help. So then the, the battle goes down to Portland. So then the Alice Greels Tavern, which is very significant because at the time, what we now think of as Portland, the, the main center of town was down by India Street, down by the docks. And again, that's where the British barracks were. And the British said, well, you've got to keep supplying us. If you don't, we're going to bombard the town. So they did. They almost flattened the whole town. And that's why it moved up to what's now the center of town is what the old port area. But that was a significant battle. So you need to look at how uh, during the start of the American Revolution, the first naval battle of the American Revolution was off the shore of Machias, Maine. And then again, they went down to Portland, another major battle there where they dis- pretty much destroyed the city of Portland at the time, the Falmouth at the time, now called Portland. So to me, you have to look at that for that sequence, is to say, what was the significance? Well, the Burnham Tavern still exists in the Chias. It's a museum run by the Daughters of the American Revolution. So that's a very interesting. Uh, building to go see. And there's some artifacts in there from way back. Allegedly, the blood of the Captain Moat that was on the ship uh, was on one of the trunks in there, allegedly. So, it's kind of interesting to see how the the taverns were the meeting places for the militia. They were the meeting places for the government business. So, it's important to look at taverns as how they were were meeting places and, and, and input to the American history.
0: The builder of the tavern was Waldo Emerson in 1753, the great uncle of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's alleged to have spent his summers there. And then you have a mention that Emerson was allegedly
2: used as a stop along the Underground Railroad. Yes, the the Underground Railroad's kind of an interesting thing because when we traveled around, every place we went made claim to being part of the Underground Railroad. (laughs) And a lot of that we can... Some of those like that one, you can document a little bit, because there is some reference, but a lot of them you can't document. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. There's a tavern in, uh, that still exists in Cumberland, Maine. It's, it's called the Prince Tavern, which is kind of neat because it still has the uh, archway where the road went through and the stagecoaches stopped. And that was allegedly part of the Underground Railroad, as was a house across the street. But I've never been able to document that. It's just passed down by oral history. But it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting that uh, there were travelers coming, going to Canada that stopped along the way and people that helped them. And this is one of the few that we could find the, the documentation to, to validate that.
0: Were there taverns
2: on the islands? What? On what island?
3: All the islands, maybe.
2: Yes, there were. There, was, there were taverns on some of the, the major islands, like, like in Islesboro and in, in Peaks Island in the larger islands, but there are over a thousand islands off the main coast, so there wasn't awesome. but One of the most interesting ones is up in North Haven, is Aunt Peppermint's Tavern, and that's kind of interesting, because allegedly you could go to that tavern and you could find, uh, not only drink, but you can find the accompaniment of a woman if you wanted to. Uh, and they actually, uh, the New Haven Historic Society has a copy of a booklet that's Tales of Aunt Peppermint, and that was named after the peppermint extract that uh, that uh, she used. To, it was ninety percent alcohol in her drink, so that was pretty popular. So again, you could get there, and they also said they could provide sisters for Waltz. and you can you know, get whatever you want out of that. But it's, it's kind, but there's some very interesting characters on some of them. But they did have they did have uh, major taverns, and and mostly those became inns later on, so some larger inns that ended up being on the, on, the, on the islands. But those were more places of destination rather than travel along the way spots. Those were destination places.
0: Are there any of these historic taverns that are still operating
2: today? Well, the Jameson Tavern in, uh, in Freeport still exists, is still in existence, and that's, again, right next to L.L. Bean. But there's also a tavern in uh, uh, in, in Wells, two oh, little Wells or Duncan, Kathy. Yeah. But it's now an Irish pub, and it's right on the post road, or Route 1, in, uh, in the Wells O'Guncliffe. Kathy's looking it up now, but they, the line's right there, so I can't remember. But what's interesting about that is part of the decor and the coconut, when you go in there is still exists from how it looked back then. So, but that's the Lindsay Tavern in Wells. And uh, it's kind of kind of neat because that was also where the, the post office was. That's also where in 1847, soldiers returning from the War of 1812 were entertained there. And it uh, hosted many guests. And one of the interesting guests that, that hosted there was Marquis de Lafayette. Now, he stayed in a lot of places along the way. The Spring Tavern in, in Saco Island was another one. But this was kind of significant because he stayed there and in 1825 after coming from south berwick and he entered the town he actually they had a parade for him. so it's kind of kind of interesting there there's also there's an article uh in the coastal county coast star in 1980 it was reported that stepping into this lindsay town is like history lesson certain 1799 when the tavern was built so In 1980, there were still large uh, murals on the wall that still existed from back then. And the tavern is now the home of, uh, I can't pronounce the name, F-B-I-L-E-S, Fields Restaurant Irish Pub uh, at 1619 Post Road in Wells. So you can still go in there and see some of the, what part of a pub looked like. And it's uh, kind of interesting, but that marquee was everywhere according to my research. (laughs) We traveled everywhere.
0: Thanks for joining us here at WERUFM Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine. We are talking today with Kathy and Bill Kenney, authors of the Historic Taverns and Tea Rooms of Maine, a wonderful book available online or from the publisher, the History Press, or through your local independent bookstore. What I loved about your book was it showed me just how ignorant I am of the history around us. I mean, yes, there are these historic house museums, and I go to those, but there's this other whole sort of architectural and humanistic subtext that is part and parcel of the cultural geography of where we live. The importance of what happened there, importance of forgotten events that have made such a difference in our lives. I just think it's wonderful when historians like you, both local, regional historians, put their minds to these subjects and we get this kind of quality research all put together in one book as a narrative and physical guide to the meaning of places that we might just drive by and in our indifference ignore and forget.
3: Uh, as far as going to a tea room today, there's, there are teas making a comeback all over the country and especially in Maine. So there are tea rooms today that are available that you can go and attend but if you're interested in going to one that was has a lot of history to it and started in the early 17 or 1800s about the only ones that are still left and operating is the Jordan Pond Tea House and the. Um, Some of the other ones that were tea houses had been converted into houses now or other other businesses or they have been torn down. And that was one of the reasons that we decided to record as many as we could because they were disappearing and they were such a big impact on women's uh, independence that we thought somebody should have a record of it. It, because tea is making such a big comeback now, there are now tea rooms that people can attend to. And they really should, because it's a delightful experience.
0: I highly recommend this book to our
2: listeners. I'd like to weigh in on one more thing about tea rooms that's significant. The summer theaters had tea rooms. The one in Surrey was huge and uh, they were very formal. They have limousines come up and drop the patrons off, and the one in Madison, Maine, of course, uh, was also significant. It's kind of neat because you had the combination of summer theater and, and tea rooms. And another thing about the combining taverns and tea rooms, if you look at places like the Eastland Hotel in Portland, which still exists, when the Temperance Movement came to be, they said, oh my god, we got this big bar and lounge and restaurant, and we can't serve alcohol. So they, they put a sign in their window with the letter T in parentheses, which stood for tea room. So now they, the temperance move, they use the letter T. So all of a sudden their, their patrons of the hotel can go in there and have their afternoon teas and they became very elaborate, or tea dances and tea gowns. So they adapted to the time, like we're adapting now with the pandemic, they did what they had to do to get through. So they converted from places of alcohol to places of tea. So what amazed me when we were doing this research was how it evolved and adapted to the conditions of the, of the time. And,
3: and, and to go back to your statement about it so much history being there that we don't realize is there, that was one of the things that impressed us when we started researching because the more we researched the more we discovered. And the more we discovered, the more we wondered why nobody else had discovered it and talked about it. So I think I agree with you. I think it's important to look into history and, and our past and to help us go through the future.
0: So what are you going to do next? So, Kathy, what's our next book you're talking about?
3: Oh, we, I don't know. <laughs> we have all kinds of ideas, but we can't settle on one yet. Do you have a recommendation? I do, actually.
0: What about pursuing a history of Maine through quilts? Um, I could do
1: that easily.
0: Well, I mean, there's such a resurgence of interest in quilts, quilting parties, quilting cooperatives, and cultural history through material culture not always considered high art. And so many contemporary artists now working in textiles use the quilt format. It strikes me that these are every much a personal statement of an artist revealed, through social events and historical events and religious beliefs, another medium by which to make material memory of things that are personal and particular to our experience and place.
3: I I agree with you. I should mention that a book just came out this year called Maine Quilts. And the the author is Lori Lamar. And what she has done is written a book about the quilts that are in the main State Museum. So that tells a little bit about history, but with my quilt historian lectures that I've given, I have um, a number of antique quilts and produce lectures that talk about everything from the start of the textile mills all the way up through suffragettes and and quilting on the farm and everything. So that would be a great, easy topic for me to do.
0: Well, I would find that one fascinating. I think a lot of other people would, too. I hope you do it. And yeah. then, of course, there's Bill's book on the main railroads, a whole nother topic. I often <laughs> wonder at crossings or when rails are glimpsed from an automobile.
2: Where's that track going and why? I approached the publisher about doing a book on Maine governors and the history through Maine governors in history, but they didn't seem interested. So they haven't taken it off. At some point, I hope we
0: can come back together again for another conversation from the Pointed Furs. Thanks so much. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you both. <laughs> Thanks for joining me today for this wonderful story of the social history and political culture in Maine as nurtured in unexpected places. My guests today have been Bill and Kathy Kenney, discussing their book, Historic Taverns and Tea Rooms of Maine, My next guest will be Christopher Packard, author of Mystical Creatures of Maine, Fantastic Beasts from Legend and Folklore, published by Globe, Pequot Press, and Down East Books. We have a little extra time in this, the sixth edition of Conversations from the Pointed Furs, and I would like to speak for a moment to the concept of public humanities, the idea of collective material culture, buildings, artifacts, archives, photographs that are an essential part of understanding who we are and from where we have come in Maine and elsewhere. The resources we have in our state are many. Art museums like the Museum of Art in Portland and the Farnsworth Art Museum in Rockland. Maritime museums like the Maine Maritime Museum in Bath and the Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport and history museums like the Wilson Museum in Brooksville or the Abbe Museum in Bar Harbor. Maine also supports a fascinating network of historic houses, not just the taverns and tea rooms that we have discussed today, but also local historical societies, places and other parks and monuments that commemorate the rich and mostly unknown history of where we live. I'd like to single out the Maine State Museum in Augusta, founded in 1836, but closed or eliminated six times over the next 135 years and until 1971, now 60 years ago, it was consolidated and relocated to its current building where it collects and conserves a rich and varied compendium of our historical record. The museum is supported in part by annual budget appropriations and by private donations. But how many of us have actually visited there? visited all these institutions in all those places that so powerfully evoke the spirit of Maine. When we talk about Maine's future, we talk about the economic and community effect of cultural tourism. Over the last year, as the nation has sought distraction from the pandemic that has afflicted so many, new visitors to Maine have arrived in record numbers. We may lament the traffic they bring with them, but that stream of interest and finance has brought employ, support, and hope to many. What these visitors are discovering first is our scenic beauty, both coastal and inland. But they are also discovering the places and occupations that have aggregated to become our collective psyche. Timber, lumber and pulp, lobster and fisheries, stone, ice, potatoes, transportation coastwise and beyond— Boat building, exploration, and all the other strands that woven together are our connections, literal and psychological over time, that define our values, our humanism, our state's unique identity, that is the fundamental rationale for why we live here. If there is an underlying purpose to these conversations from the Pointed Furs, it is to reveal and promote these elements of our collective character editions that have addressed wilderness and indigenous values, the power of material culture, experience through story and song, nature writing, ingenuity and invention, and unknown places where we have communed as men, as women, writing our history, each of us, everyone, by our words and deeds as simple as they may seem. We should do well to honor all these good people our ancestors who have come before, our predecessors on whose determinations and beliefs we stand, whose memory we honor, whose travail and successes have built this special place called Maine. Stay home. Look around. I'm Peter Neal. Thanks for listening. Sarah Orange Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896 and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnett Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story, the portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island, and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in, that sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists, visit our galleries and independent bookstores, and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal.
1: You've been listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, Maine. Join us for a new conversation the first Friday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. here on WERU. Conversations from the Pointed Furs is a Island Books audio project produced by Tricia Badger with theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Find Archive public affairs shows at weru.org and visit pointedfurs.org for more information and show notes, and find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.